Hey listeners, welcome to this episode. This week is a very special interview for us at the Simple Church Collective. This interview is with Rob Wagner of the Kansas City Underground and Lance Ford. They co-authored a book called The Starfish and the Spirit. The Starfish and the Spirit is a deeply transformative book for the church in America. We believe this book has something to teach every single believer. It speaks to the disciple-making movement that we are creating and a cast vision for the future of the church in America. This interview is a must listen. Now it's a bit longer of an episode, but we decided that it was necessary for the scope of the starfish and the spirit to be realized. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Enjoy. Hey guys, welcome to Keeping It Simple, where we talk about life and mission in ways that are easy to understand. My name is Luis. And I'm Scott. Welcome to today's podcast. Let's get started. Today on the show, we have Lance Ford and Rob uh, Wegner. And what we want to do today is, is kind of expose you guys to them and their ministry. But really, they've uh, written this wonderful resource that dropped just a couple of weeks ago, The Starfish and the Spirit. And we're going to explore the themes in this book today. Um, Rob, uh, we met you and we're, we're getting to, to know Lance even now. Uh, but Rob, we met you through a connection through one of the guys that we've had on the podcast yep. already, Jeff and um, Jeff Vanderstel here out of, out of Seattle. And it's been just really cool connecting with Rob and learning about the work of the Kansas City Underground. We got to hang out on St. Patty's Day. Uh, oh, in that, was Kin- a, that was a fun time, man. In, that was a fun in time. Kansas City and kind of hear your story. Loved the connection there with Brennan mm-hmm. Manning. And it was it was just really, really neat. And so welcome yeah. to the show. Um, and so that's a little bit about how we met. but Yeah, uh, we just wanted to introduce you guys to uh, our audience. And so if you guys could just tell us maybe a quick rundown of, of who you are, maybe, maybe a little bit about what you do, and maybe even why you guys decided to join up and write this book. Yeah, you bet. Well, it's great to be with you guys. Really, it was fun hosting you out in Kansas City for a few days for that Multipliers Learning community. And mm. I love the story God is writing through you. And it is, it's always um, deep unto deep when you meet someone else who you know is a ragamuffin and they know they know. That's it. right. That's right. That's right. Whose heart has been seized by a strange affection, as Brennan used to say. So, um, mm. well, in terms of the um, the book, I mean, it's for me, it's kind of come out of a more than 15 year sort of obsession with um, having experienced um, authentic, flat out, Holy Spirit empowered movement in Southern India, um, a disciple making movement that was like something ripped out of the pages in the New Testament. And I tasted that before there have been a few different times in my life where something that felt like genuine renewal revival happened to me in high school and then another time in college and then this church plan I, I was part of there were a couple seasons there but this was like the seven full course feast <laughs> and it basically just ruined me and a couple books in particular were really influential one was the forgotten ways by alan hirsch and alan's like a phenomenologist he was his obsession was like, what makes the church go kaboom? What, when the church is a genuine movement, what are the elements that are at play? And 
And I really feel like it was a gift from heaven, that book, that like a message that um, time will tell, but I think it has almost the power of a reformation in it um, to have people sort of awaken again to the church as a movement and what are the six key DNA. And then another book by, by a guy named Ori Brofman and Rod Beckstrom. Uh, Ori is a professor at uh, one of the bastions of human secularism in America. Um, and, but he's an honest academic and a real servant leader. And that book was about rediscovering a form of leadership that was decentralized. Uh, so much leadership that we've, especially in the church world too. I mean, that we've learned in seminary or we've learned at the church conferences has been a very centralized form. And it almost goes unnoticed, unstated, unquestioned. Like this is just how it's done. Uh -huh. um, but Ori was looking at different examples of decentralized leadership. And one of them that really captivated him was the church. I mean, I think Ori would tell you that the earliest and maybe the best example of decentralized leadership was Jesus in the early church and then the great disciple making movements today. So I'm gonna hand it off to Lance. Like basically Lance and I have been friends for a long time. We've both lived in Kansas City. Um, currently I'm director, one of the directors of the Kansas City Underground, which is a network of micro churches and missionaries in Kansas City and a mission agency to support them. Lance has been a thought leader in the missional movement and a practitioner in Kansas City. And he's actually kickstarting a new underground movement in Huntsville, Alabama. But uh, he invited me into this project, which became the spirit and the starfish. And I'll kind of hand it off to him because he was he was friends with Uri Brothman first because he's so much cooler. Well, so much since better. You, since you brought that up. You're like the, I was the starting quarterback. Yeah. I, I I I hung I'm out with nerd. Manning twice and he dissed you, didn't he? If I know, I shut up. Isn't that right? We want to talk about that. Sure. <laughs> love it. Love it. That'll be on the return episode. <laughs> so yeah, as as as, as Rob said, so um, and I was a pastor, a church planter eons ago in St. Louis, and uh, mm -hmm. but for the, about the last 16 years, most of my time has been spent in coaching, and consulting, and writing. Uh, particularly with church planters and leaders that are looking to transition their churches to one degree or another up, you know, in, in what we've called, and you don't even hear the term a whole lot anymore, the missional movement. And I'm completely fine with that. Uh, I think it's seeded enough deep into the church now mm -hmm. that it's not like you have to do any deconstructive um, arguments about it. It's the questions now that resolve around it are, how do we do it? And right. so yeah. I think we talk a lot more about incarnational now, which is I'm very happy about. So, um, but Rob and I, as he said, we became friends years ago and uh, we've uh, been on speaking platforms together and lived in the same city and a lot of great stuff. And so uh, this book, uh, I'd written a book about nine years ago called uh, Unleader and uh, which was really a pretty, heavy critique of what I call the leadership industrial complex that's gripped the church over the last 25 years. You see, about 50 years ago, we had the church growth movement that became what was called the seeker movement, while you guys were still watching Rugrats, by the mm. way. And then that gave- I was watching Saved by the Bell. Get it right. <laughs> <laughs> They're gonna start dropping it now. <laughs> so then, uh, we for about the last 25 years 
everything's been about leadership, 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 leadership. And so what I started noticing about most of the leadership training and a lot of the leadership teaching that was coming out, um, even by self-avowed Christian leaders was, it was really, I, I just got to call it what it is. It's Babylonian oh. type of thinking. And oh. uh, a lot of it is very heavy dominator thinking which is the very thing Jesus said in Matthew 20. He said, not on my watch. He said, uh, uh, the Gentiles exercise dominion over one another. It will not be that way among you. And then, of course, this is when he says, you know, if you want to be uh, first, you got to be last. Right. Uh, if you want to be greatest, you got to be the servant. And so uh, most leadership concepts, and, and you guys live in the backyard of one of the biggest blowups of right. of, a, yeah. of this type of leadership mm -hmm. uh and i with mars hill uh which was totally built on the type of leadership that i talked about in unleader and then so one one comment on that lance that, sure. that's really important what's interesting about that kind of centralized leadership is it looks so very strong it looks almost mm -hmm. indomitable yeah but what mars hill revealed it was kind of a foreshadowing of covid i mean it Seriously, it went from one month, it is kind of the hero story for a, a significant part of church leadership and church planning in America. It's like, this is it. This is that. I mean, this is the top of the mountain. This is, and then literally within three months, the whole thing's disbanded. It's gone. It's yeah. gone. And it looks incredibly strong, but it's actually very, very yeah. fragile, you know, yeah. very vulnerable. And then COVID is like the ultimate object lesson for the church yeah. in America to go, hmm. Yep. I mean, I saw a foreshadow of this stuff. And so I was writing about it. And then we started seeing guys go down. Mm -hmm. And every few months, there would be a very well-known pastor go down. And then you started seeing really big guys, Mark Driscoll, you know, and then you, you know, James McDonald. I mean, we just name name after name. And then when you see Bill Hybels, who has said more, it has shaped the leadership industrial complex more than anyone. When you see that go down and you find out that really what kept him in the shadows and allowed him to do some of the things that he did that surprised so many people on the outside, it was those leadership systems themselves uh, that really mm. are so fragile. And, and like Rob said, uh, came down quickly because they're built on the flesh. And no mm. flesh will glory in my presence, the Lord says. So when his presence leaves, man, we're in trouble. So been thinking about a lot of this stuff for the last few years and thinking that there needed to be a follow-up. And so I had become friends with Ori <clears throat> right after the Starfish and the Spider came out in 2006 and had maintained that relationship and had done a few things with him and even had him speak at a couple of our conferences that we were a part of. And uh, so I'd actually approached Ori about doing this book as co-authors. And so Ori was all in for a while and then just really felt like it just was not going to really be in his sweet spot. Um, but uh, even before he decided that, I had felt like Rob was supposed to be, which is strange that we would have three authors because it's hard enough to write to do co-authorship. It's a lot easier to write by yourself. But um, so Rob came on and uh, and I knew that Rob was going to bring an insight uh, and a side that was just going to be something that I would just wasn't in my in, in my wheelhouse. And so um, 
we did that. And then Ori was with us for about a year on the project. In fact, we missed deadline after deadline, which I'd never missed a deadline before. And uh, there was these delays. And then uh, Ori got to the point where he just felt, and, 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 and Rob and I, we could see it. It was just like the, the voice is just not really working there, but Ori really became a mentor to us uh, oh. in this stuff. Even he came up with the name of the book. We were going to call it the starfish in the church, which is the name of our podcast, by the way, shameless plug. Yeah, let's go listen to that. What was that? Starfish and the church. Oh, the let's starfish and the church. Starfish in the church. Yeah. The starfish in the church. Okay. Just making sure. Yeah, not the starfish in the spirit which is the name of the book that Ori came up with this name. But he said, you know, Ori's advice to us was, hey, let's name it the Starfish in the Spirit because it will open up to just faith-based organizations, faith-based business owners, et cetera. And so we were on board with that. And then he really became a guide in several ways. And then lo and behold, Rob's mom, who is not some TBN watching Pentecostal, <laughs> has a dream from the Lord. Let's go. And how did she put it, Rob? How did she put it? I mean, she said, Robert, it was like I heard a voice. Alan Hirsch, the voice said, Alan Hirsch. And I knew I was supposed to talk to you and tell you, I think Alan Hirsch is supposed to help you write this next book. Love it. It's my mom's yes. voice. So that's the mom voice. So Rob calls me up and says, hey, let's talk to Alan. And so we did. And Alan came in. And so really, Alan's role within the book was to because he has had such a profound influence. He's really been our papa, big brother. I wrote my first book with Alan. So, Lance, can I stop you right there for a second? For some of our listeners who may not be familiar with Alan, could you maybe describe him uh, briefly and, and the influence? Well, so, yeah. Can I so, just say there's, there's two good metaphors. He's the missional pope or he's the missional Yoda. You can pick whichever one works better for you. <laughs> and we and, and a little bit of Bono in there too. So, uh, uh, so Alan uh, is South African slash uh, Australian, uh, born and raised in South Africa. Moved to Australia when he was twenty one years old. Alan really came on the four in two thousand and three when he and Michael Frost wrote a book called "The Shaping of Things to Come," which still that book. It, it could have been written this morning. I mean, it's, oh. it's, it, it was that prescient, you know, it, it, it really was so prophetic in seeing where the church is going to have to go. And I remember many times and Rob, you probably remember this. I remember seeing Alan speak in front of crowds, you know, 15, 16 years ago. And the first thing he would do is say, I've come from your future. And what he meant by that was coming from a really a European type of a con saying, hey, I've seen what happens when Christendom falls and the church doesn't change in response and listen to mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit to change and just keeps on doing things the way it's yeah. doing. And guess what? The answer is it doesn't exist. Go to Europe right now. And whereas in the 1950s, the churches were filled with about the numbers that we are now, but they didn't respond when mm. Christendom started falling there. And now you got it like 3%. And of course, we're seeing those trends, right? now yeah. so very prescient in it and then Colin Forth so Alan and Michael Frost really started writing a series of books uh dealing with this and that's they really they weren't weren't the ones that came up with the term missional but they really got it out there in, in, a, in a large way and um uh and then Alan writes a book in two in 20, 2005 called or 2006 called uh The Forgotten Ways which 
calls out what he calls the six MDNA or the, the, the missional DNA. And so we took what has been in us through a lot of that and through the starfish and the spider uh, metaphor and said, okay, what does this have to say about the church and how the church is going to have to change in two factors in the essence of the ecclesia, as far as the way that the church forms itself embodies itself and presents itself and collects itself together and sends itself out. And then the DNA within that, we call it fractals, is the actual leadership ways and means being a decentralized ways and means of leading actually too. So uh, that's where the metaphor came into play. So you you just talked about this metaphor. You talked about the spider uh, and you talked about about the the starfish could you guys maybe rob maybe break that down uh about like you know what led you guys to that metaphor you talk so so in the book you talk about how organizations are usually and you alluded to this with the mars hill thing and others like are you you usually go one or two ways spider like or starfish like for folks who haven't read the book yet kind of talk about that metaphor for us yeah, you bet. So that was the metaphor that Ori and Rod Beckstrom presented in the book, The Spider and the Starfish. And the idea is you've got two organisms there that look somewhat the same from a distance. You've got a main body, and then there's what looks like appendages that are going out radially from the center. Um, when you get up closer, you see they're different. But in particular, they're different in terms of how the intelligence and the power is distributed. So all the power and the intelligence of a spider is in its head. So if you cut off the head of a spider, it's rip, rest in peace, because there's a central brain. And that's like centralized organizations or centralized leadership. Um, there's usually a person or a small body of people that regulates um, the power, the decision-making in a very direct fashion. It's typically hierarchical. Um, and if something bad happens to that decision-making person or body, the entire organization can die. And Mars Hill is like, case in point. That's what happened. S starfish don't have that problem. Uh, if you cut a, the head of a starfish off, actually, and you fling them apart, you come back later, there's two entire starfish. That was a cool story. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's true. Like, they actually regenerate. And a starfish has in, in each of its cells all that it needs to regenerate the entire starfish. So every cell of a starfish organization, unlike a spider organization, has what it needs to reproduce because the power and the intelligence is distributed through the entire organization. And it's not built on a pyramid sort of hierarchy. It's built on these kind of open circles of reproducing leaders. And eventually what happens is in a starfish organization, you have multiple nodes of power that are spread throughout the network and who's making the decisions is based on who has the most intelligence about that particular decision, not just, I'm the guy who's in charge around here. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So that's the metaphor, guys. And that's, that's something that Lance and I have been trying to live into. And I've been, really, it's been sort of my life's work to go, how do we actually make this operational? You know, so this book is coming out of a lot of experiments and failures and multiple iterations and, um, and finally really seeing some what feels like the flywheel is really starting to move in movements like the underground movement or Soma and yeah. Saturate or yeah, Pope yeah. Chapel. We're starting to see expressions in the Western world of more mature forms, um, which is hopeful because there really is 
I think going to be much more normative, like 50 years from now, this won't be yeah. novel anymore. It'll just be like, yeah. Oh, this is what a bunch of the church does in America. Like it is yeah. in Africa or China or India, you know? Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, so following that up, how does Jesus connect to the idea of starfish leadership and movements? Man, you want to kick that one off, bud? And I'll follow up. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it starts out with his humility. You know, I mean, he starts out, I mean, he is the humble servant and he presents it through and through in the way that he led and the humility that he led and the, and the way that it connects with movements is, I mean, if there's anybody that ever could have collected and built a crowd yeah. and a bigger crowd and a bigger crowd and a bigger yeah. crowd, it and was a strict hierarchy. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, they were lining up and the boys were lining up to you know, to where do you want me position? You know, I'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be your cabinet. So, you know, and Jesus is like, man, you, you guys still don't get it. And he's constantly having to say, you still don't get it. So the irony is that Jesus is constantly retracting himself away from the crowds into the smaller circles. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's these concentric circles, you know, we talk about the crowds or the 5,000s. And then we talk about, the the 72 you know and then we talk about the 12 and then we talk about the three which is the triad and so jesus is constantly pulling himself back and giving the most of himself and the most of his time to the smaller circles and the small and why is he doing he's building a movement which if jesus would have just constantly concentrated on the crowds like most of us preachers and pastors do when g when the cross happened the movement would have died with it but mm -hmm. it didn't because he had already put it into all these other guys that went out and they believed it and they lived it. And then they did what he had done in them. And then mm -hmm. as we start moving throughout the new Testament, we start seeing it. And, and, uh, uh, Rob can riff on this here in a minute about when you start seeing four generations that you're looking yeah. to pour the disciple making into that's what movemental is. And Jesus is the perfect example of how to do it. Now here's the irony is that, we really don't have a tendency to look to Jesus as our model for making disciples. Uh, I did a research project several years ago, and um, I, I did all this research on Amazon and bookstores. I physically went into book into Christian bookstores. Uh, Seventy-eight percent of the of the discipleship material is written out of the epistles. Now, now think about that. Now, the, now, I'm not saying anything bad about the epistles, so don't send emails, okay? But why is Jesus not a pretty good source for disciple making? He knew what he was doing, and so he was thinking movement all along. That's brilliant. You know, the, the thing that struck me, a couple of things, Lance, while you were talking, um, when you use the illustration about Jesus would have focused on the crowds, after the cross would have dissipated, it reminded me um, an example of that would be George Woodfield and John Wesley. They were yeah. both alive at the same time. And George Woodfield actually had more influence in his time. He was a, he was a more successful preacher. He had larger mm -hmm. crowd sizes. Yeah. He was considered to be a much better order. And they were friends, actually. You know, yeah. So it wasn't yeah. like they were on a different page or working against each other. But he stopped preaching and his... <laughs> Gone. What, what's it's left gone. what's left from george whitfield yeah. you have books with his sermons in it yep john wesley still has a movement although it's sick it's still going yeah you know and outside the western world actually it's pretty healthy you know mm -hmm. um because he was a starfish leader he built everything on 
these concentric circles that Lance was talking about. And the proof that Jesus is a starfish leader is when he says things like this. I call you my friends. You're going to do greater things than I'm going to do. That's right. Yeah. See, that's the heart of the starfish leader. It's like, I'm going to get you to maximum influence and you're going to exceed me. And it's actually better that I go away. Yeah. What? What are you talking about? Yeah. No, it's actually better that it's better if I'm not here. And the, and the reason that we say what, what, what Rob just said there, the reason that we feel like it is such an important issue is because uh, we have been around so many leaders, high-level leaders, high-level pastors, and seen and heard and heard them give advice to young pastors saying, hey, listen, here's one of the things you, do, you, you just do not want to do. You can't be friends with your staff. Oh. You got to keep a distance. Yeah, I hate that, yeah. Yeah, you got to keep a distance from Well, why, man? Because they won't respect you. No, here's the deal. If you believe that, and if you believe that, that, that in operating that way, that those, those guys and gals are respecting you, they don't respect you. They're afraid of you. That's right. And fear and respect are not the same thing. And the spirit never leads. The spirit doesn't lead with fear. He always leads with faith and purity yeah. and kindness and gentleness. If you don't have the fruit of the spirit coming out in your leadership, Paul said you're just a clanging bell, right? I mean, that's- my, my, my Pentecostal stuff is going to come out. That's you're it. You're preaching there, Lance. You're preaching, brother. I'm sorry. No, that's great. In a minute. Oh, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. So, so how do people begin to become these like starfish uh, leaders, right? Take us through potentially maybe a journey of how you guys kind of see that. Like, how do, how do people begin to take some of these steps? Yeah, actually, there's a. If you jump to the end of our book, we have this thing called kind of the starfish journey. And of course, we don't have time to cover it now in the podcast. But there, there is a journey that begins with what you could call your missional imagination. Um, missional imagination is actually a very potent spiritual practice. It's not a lot of times you say the word imagination, people get nervous like, you're talking about new age. So much of what the prophets are trying to do is to get us to reimagine the world and reimagine who God is and reimagine what it means to be his people. So the first section of the book is called Reimagine Church. And um, we're asking uh, for all of us to, to have the posture of a student, you know, mm. to be um, curious, to be willing to unlearn some things and it's hard for us to understand how much we've all been influenced by the christendom template of church it's just so deeply imprinted on our minds and then also our souls and it takes i think a leader years actually of intentional sort of paradigm work mm. to um detox from that and when I say missional imagination, part of that is going to be, well, you, you need to read books like, you know, the starfish and the spirit or the forgotten ways you have to intentionally, but it also means exposure. You know, like I just really respect you guys. You're willing to travel all the way across the country to literally just expose yourself to something different and to pay, give up the time, the money, the energy to walk around in a different space because you, it, you know, it's one thing to read about it. It's another thing to taste and see. Right. Yeah. And we basically are asking church leaders to um, reimagine the church as a movement, 
but in the book we try to give some real teeth to that because movement has become sort of an empty catchphrase in the church Mm. um and we talk about five essential points of multiplication that are necessary in a movement and the bigger picture is the, the whole idea of gospel saturation um what what does it look like when god's will is done on earth as it is in heaven what is universal flourishing look like in every sphere of society in your city what is it um when leaders start there in the presence of jesus um i think that is the beginning of the journey it doesn't start with tactics it starts with a spirit of repentance in your personal relationship with jesus and also your relationship with the church it's like it's hard for us as church leaders we get paid to run a certain form of church just like let that sink in for a moment like when you get paid to run something and you needed to succeed on a certain set of metrics um so i i give huge props to any pastor who's willing to do that yeah and, and that whole unlearning that, that Rob's talking to, and I, I tell you, you know, so guys, your generation, I mean, we are convinced, I mean, us old guys here are completely convinced that the existence, the very existence of the church in North America is in your hands. And, you know, that seriously, it only takes one generation for it to go extinct. And that mm-hmm. is why Europe is a really good picture for us. So, I mean, it's, it's huge. And, and we've not handed you a good model. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's the thing. We've handled, we've handed you a model of, 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 of making church rather than making disciples. Mm-hmm. And that's really the key to it, you know. And, and it's, it's crazy that we even have to have that conversation, you right. know. And yeah. over the last four or five years, that's why everybody, you know, we're having these conversations. Hey, you know what? It's about making disciples. <laughs> wow, what a concept! Yeah, that's what Jesus said to do. And then we, our, our, our response to him was, "Okay, I'll build you a church." And he says, "No, go make disciples." And we said, "Yeah, Lord, I'll build you a church." He said, "No, I will build my church. You go make disciples because it is, yeah, it, it is, it what happens all the time, and it is very possible, and it happens is guys and gals." start churches but they never make disciples you can you can Mm. you can grow a big church without ever making one disciple but i'll tell you this much you can't make a little handful of disciples that won't become the church and become a strong church um so we've got to get back to the roots of the thing and what we find out in leadership is when we do that it's a light load it's it it is that light load that jesus promised and it's more fun there's more joy in it for everyone. As you said something, Lance, something when people, um, it's just every day and well-meaning people, you know, they know that we're on this kind of church planting journey. And one of the first things that they ask us is like, so do you guys have a building yet? Oh, I know what the first thing they ask you. You know, it's like, do you guys have a building yet? And, and we begin to try to kind of share, Hey, listen, you know, that that's not the first thing, you know, we're building relationships, we're connecting with others, we're trying to love um, the people um, that God is calling us to love well. And that's some of those paradigm shifts that need to happen. Can you guys speak to that, to like the paradigm shifts that uh, need to happen in order for us to begin to take a hold of starfish leadership and movements? Well, I'll say this, um, you know, one of the shifts is that 
that level of ecclesiology. You know, we tend to think of church as a building. It's not a building, it's a body. We tend to think of the church as a program. It's not a program, it's a people. We tend to think of church as an event. It's not an event. It's everyday ordinary people living in every area of life in the Lordship of Jesus, you know? And, Mm -hmm. And we have these little phrases we say that seem harmless, like let's go to church. It's not a harmless phrase. Like you wouldn't say Jesus is sort of Lord and think that that was fine. (laughs) It's like, you can't say Jesus is sort of Lord. What do you mean? That's a contradiction. Like to say, go to church. It's exactly the same. Like you're basically saying church is an event. It's a place. It's a program. Mm -hmm. But you have thousands of church leaders. It's like, that's our strategy. We want you to go to church and invite all your friends to go to church. Like, those are the things we have to actually repent of. It's like, no, that's not that's not the ecclesiology of the New Testament. Let's talk about what is the church. Well, the word ecclesia is used four ways. One, it talks about the household of faith, which is the church that was gathering in the homes, for example, in Jerusalem. Or like you go to the end of the book of Romans, and it's talking to a distributed network of missional leaders and microchurches in the city of Rome. You know, James Dunn leading New Testament scholar says there's probably at least five different microchurches that are being led by those leaders. Could be more. Um, So the first use of Ecclesia is to describe that form of the church. The second one is when Paul writes to the church in the city of Rome. That's another use. So it's talking about the church in the city. The third use is when Paul's like, uh, the gospel, uh, the church spread through Asia Minor. It's like the church in a region. And then there's the more universal use of it, like the church throughout time and history. Those are actually the four ways the word gets used in the New Testament. None of them, I mean, if you think about it, I'm not trying to poke anybody in the eye because I've most of my adult life I've led in large churches, but that form of church, how does that fit with the four uses of the New Testament word? It creates a little tension, doesn't it? Right. I'm not quite yeah. sure where that one fits. <laughs> but that's the normative idea that we have for church. And we have to start to go, okay, well, it doesn't really match up with those four biblical definitions. So maybe we need to start reconceiving the church in a different way. And so that's one of the paradigm shifts is your ecclesiology. Um, Lance, what's another one, man? What comes to mind for you? Well, I believe that, um, and of course, I'm, I'm kind of the leadership rant guy. So <clears throat> we have to reconceptualize leadership. And that was that's the second section of, the, of, of, of our book is where we really talk about viewing leadership in, an, in a different way. And our default mechanisms in our minds always go just like it does with church, like what, what Rob was saying. Our default mechanisms of what church is is the way it's defined goes to a certain model. Uh, that we've lived with and has been presented to us. Well, leadership's been the same way. So the majority of leadership's been presented to us in a dominator fashion. Um, And we've been told that really the definition of leadership is to get other people to follow you, which is a misnomer. Uh, We're not to get other people to follow us. We're to get other people to follow with us as we follow Christ. And so even when Paul says that, say that again, say that again, Lance, say that again, one more time, one more time. 
Well, we're not to get people to follow us. It's what you hear all the time in leadership is getting people to follow you, follow you, follow you. No, it's to get to people to follow with you as you follow Jesus. With us as we follow Follow Jesus. with us. Right. That's the, that's, that's the big change. Well, that changes a lot of things. It affects our titles uh, because most titles in the church today are rank-based rather than role-based. Mm. Most of it comes straight out of the world come straight out of the systems that Jesus said, the Gentiles exercise dominion over one another. It will not be that way among you. So we call ourselves seniors. We call ourselves leaders or lead pastor or senior. Hey, hey, hey. I'm the lead author on this book, man. I'm the lead author. (laughs) And what's been imported over the last 20 years is executive now. So we have executive teams and we have executive pastors. Well, these are very Mm -hmm. heavy rank-based role or uh, uh, titles that let everybody know who is large and who's in charge. Well, right. you never see that in the New Testament. What you see is you see sibling language throughout the New Testament, brothers oh. and sisters. This and 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 you hear language from Paul where he says we're co-workers, we're partners. In fact, that is the word, the Greek word synergos, which is where we get synergy from. Um, so even when Paul does use the term apostle referring to himself, like in Romans one, uh, he's, he leads with saying, I'm, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm a slave. It's, it's, and it's not diakonos, it's doulos, it's slave, the most abject servile term you could use. I am a slave of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle. So he doesn't introduce himself saying, I'm apostle Paul. He says, I'm Paul, an apostle. So these are descriptors of roles that they have nothing to do with rank. And so uh, that we have to reimagine these type of things. We have to reimagine what the roles of a leader is. You know, like, you know, I hear people talk a lot about delegation. Well, you know, uh, you know, a, a good, you know, generous leader delegates. No, no, you don't delegate. It's not about delegating. It's about equipping. That's what Ephesians 4 said. You equip others. You give them the resources they need. You give them the tools they need. You coach them up. You don't boss them down or boss them around. And so this is you you have to start reimagining your role as a leader and really what leadership looks like. And that's where this distributed intelligence goes out into the body because others start getting to release because in any given room, like, you know, like, like right now, there's four of us, let's say in in this virtual room, each one of us have different experiences. We have, we come from different contexts, from different places. We have different giftings. We have different anointings out of the four of us. There are certain gifts that some of us are stronger in. uh, And then there's other gifts that another one is stronger in. Well, we have a tendency to rank certain gifts as the smartest one. And then what happens is that person has permission to say yes or no, has veto power at the end of the day. You never see this in the New Testament because there's a constant threat, especially when it comes to money. And if you have someone on your staff that answers to you constantly and you write their paychecks, they're going to only be so honest with you. They're pretty much going to tell you what they think you want to hear at the end of the day. And so we talk about accountability for leaders, like the leaders that we talked about earlier in the conversation that fell. And so people say, well, there needs to be, you know, Rabbi Zacharias, there should have been more accountability. Well, who's going to be, who's going to hold them accountable, right? If you don't have a plural leadership, now 
one of the things that we're not saying is that everyone has the same amount of power. Just the fact that if Alan Hirsch was sitting here right now, first thing Robin, I would say is Alan's got more power than we do in certain areas, but he's a humble leader. And the thing is, is we actually have more power than he does in certain areas. It's not about power. It's about mm -hmm. making one another the most powerful person that they can be in the Lord. So yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's not about equal power. It's about equality of opportunity and equality of voice because the smartest and person really in the room at a given moment can be five different people in five different moments that would have. Yeah, it's, but it's, but it's, when you have a some... hard hierarchy and a dominator hierarchy holding it down, you hold that intelligence down and you, and you shut those voices down. You know, I was just going to add to that, Lance, that it's, you know, Paul put so much energy into the idea of mutual submission. Oh. And you, what's crazy is if you look at the Godhead, there's mutual submission inside the Godhead. Yeah. And then we build a church and it's like, there's one guy in charge and we're supposed to submit to him. The Godhead isn't even like that. Yeah. You know, and so, mm -hmm. and what he's saying here is that the mutual submission piece is on some areas, let's say we're discussing shepherding then either my wife, Michelle, or Bree, who are actually way more gifted in shepherding than I, I am, I should follow their leadership. If we're going to talk about something mm -hmm. more apostolic, well, I have more power in that area. And you learn to begin to understand where everyone's gifted and talented, called, and you learn to be mutually submission, submissive to one another, you know? And Lance did a brilliant job. Like, we've basically talked about three, we're talking about two paradigm shifts so far. The first one is reimagining church from institutional church, church as a movement. The second one here that Lance has talked about is, you know, moving from kind of the centralized hierarchical form of leadership to the decentralized kind of reproducing maximum influence of everyone. And the last part of the book is a paradigm shift about disciple making. And um, when we talk about some very important shifts, um, for example, I don't think knowledge-based discipleship think obedience-based discipleship. Mm. America has done the best data dump of the best discipleship data and information of any generation in the history of the church and probably done worse in, in discipleship than any other generation. It isn't about how much content and how good is the content. Now, the content matters. Like, it's got to yeah. be shaped and flavored by the gospel. It's got to be orthodox. It's got to be in full alignment with the scriptures. But ultimately, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. If you're my friend, you'll obey. We are to teach to obey. And it's in when we walk by the Spirit and keep in step. Uh, so how do we move from a knowledge-based discipleship to obedience-based discipleship? Another one is lecture-based discipleship oh. versus discovery-based discipleship. Yeah, that's good. Right? Like we, everything is turned into here's the preacher or here's the video curriculum or here's the book. And there's virtually no discovery. And how, how did Jesus do it most of the time? It's like we go do something and then we debrief and then we go do something yeah. else and then we debrief and then we go and we debrief and it's, it's action-based with debrief and people are discovering. It's like, I'm sending the 72 out and then they're going to come back and they can discover things and we're going to debrief. We're going to learn together. Uh, another one is like uh, discipleship is one-on-one. -on -one. Is that how Jesus did? 
Mm. No, he he discipled in groups. He had three, he had 12, he had 72. Another one is uh, we tend to think of evangelism, then discipleship. Is that how Jesus did it? No, you start discipling the second you're interacting with anybody. Like that basically I'm talking with my neighbor who doesn't know Jesus about parenting and the gospel informs my parenting. What's happening? Discipleship. And she just doesn't know it. Yeah. Before you you disciple to and through conversion, it's, it starts with discipleship and evangelism is like the, the nuclear engine. The gospel is the nuclear engine. Evangelism is what motivates discipleship. Like I still have to evangelize myself every day. Yeah. You know, I'm speaking the good news to myself every day. Again, normal discipleship. We're thinking addition. We've got to think viral multiplication. So the third section of this book, we really make these things operational. Like how do you actually create intentional disciple making environments? And then how do you create a disciple making ecosystem where this stuff becomes normative? There's a lot of paradigm shift work to do. Yeah, (laughs) dude. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, listeners, I I hope you're getting some of this paradigm shift that Rob and Lance are talking about um, and that we need in the church to think through some of these things. But for you guys, um, Rob and Lance, as as people are listening to this and maybe they're reading the book and getting into this, could you guys maybe share a practical story or two um, about how maybe how this has actually come to life and how you've seen this in your life? Yeah, I'll tell just a few quick stories, like, you know, 30 second stories. Like uh, Mike and Christine Johnson, they live in Gardner, Kansas. They're part of the Kansas City Underground. Um, They felt very clearly called to their neighborhood. And for two years, they're doing like the quiet, mostly mundane work of being a good neighbor. And it's simple things like, getting to know your neighbor's names. And then in private, you start praying for them by name, really practicing listening, like learning how to listen and how to ask good questions. So you understand your neighbor's stories and, and then simple things like, Hey, let's have our kids play together. Uh, Mike's really into uh, uh, mixed martial arts fighting. And so is another guy in the neighborhood. So they start watching fights together. You know, Kristen's into reading. She started a book club with a few women in the neighborhood. And they've been a part of the underground from the very beginning. And they've actually been super discouraged. They're two years into this kind of beginning in prayer, listening, eating, doing meals, serving, no spiritual conversations. You know, and he said the one or two times things started to go that way, they got shut down so fast. And they were ready to give up. Like they were literally thinking about resigning from the underground. (laughs) Then in one week, they have spiritual conversations with two different sets of neighbors. And the next week, they're leading two discovery Bible studies. And like one of these discovery Bible studies, you know, the, the first week, uh, the Lord just, one of the guys had been um, grown, grown up in the Catholic church. And literally the, at the end of the discovery Bible studies, like, I think I'm getting this. Like, <laughs> it's not really about checking a box. God actually just wants a relationship with me. it's like ding 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 and he said you know they get done and he's amazed by how far they went you know 45 minutes and but they hadn't decided if they're going to meet or not next week you know and he's like i was waiting and it'd been two weeks we haven't heard anything and he's like all of a sudden he wrote me he's like hey we're gonna do that zen bible prayer thing again (laughs) i felt so much peace and joy i've been telling everyone i'm in this zen bible prayer thing (laughs) 
<laughs> so they meet up and the end of that time, they're like, can we just start doing this every single week? You know? Mm. And were they doing contemplative prayer? Or was that what they'd been doing? No, it was just called the Lord's Prayer, man. Just the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> you know, another story is uh, Chad and Allison Chambers. He he grew up doing rodeo and um, met Jesus when he was. Yeah, you met Chad. Yeah, met Jesus when he was doing too much alcohol and other pharmaceuticals and lost his way and had a friend who knew Jesus, led him to Christ and uh, dropped out of rodeo for a while because he just wanted to get his head into Jesus, you know, actually got into kind of youth ministry for a while. And then his kids started getting older and they were kind of interested in rodeo and they started getting involved again. And the Lord gave him this weird opportunity. They were doing a rodeo that was over Easter. And there was a guy who wasn't a Christian who leads the youth rodeo association. And he's like, Hey, I think like, because Chad was a good missionary. So he's like loving, he's kind, he's present, he serves all that stuff. They're like, um, would you do something on Easter? Like, we'd, like we could just circle the families up. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I could. So two guys give their lives to Christ at this thing. And that starts what is now, it's amazing. Like it's a network of three microchurches. One, uh, not during COVID, but that summer before, they baptized more than 30 people in horse troughs at the rodeo, man, in the summer. Yeah. You know? Um, it's ordinary people. Who, yep. who learn to plant the gospel, plant themselves, how to go from small talk to meaningful conversation to spiritual conversation, and then plant the gospel. And we do it all out through Discovery Bible Study, which anyone can lead. I don't have to be a preacher. I don't have to be the expert teacher. Yeah. I can let the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, bring revelation. And then you start living these family rhythms of up, in, and out, you know? Yeah. So there's a couple of stories just off the top of my head, man. And I, and I think, you know, one of the things that makes all that catalytic and makes it go and functions in everyday people is Ephesians 4, we've treated it as a leadership text. We thought this is about leaders when he talks about the apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher, which we call the ACES or fivefold. Uh, we've always been taught that's a leadership text and it's not, it's a body text. Oh. It's, a, it's, it's written to the body. And then Paul is very clear. He's saying, hey, if, if, if you'll do this, this is how you get strong, mature saints in a functional yeah. body where every ligament and every joint comes together and the body gets movement. And, and it's, it's, it's right before us. And so a big part of it is uh, we talk about uh, GPS, gifts, passion, and story, helping people discover their gifts. What's their passion? What's the story? And where does the story of God and their story come together? So this is a big part of the job of us as leaders. And we thought it was to just only make a Sunday morning happen really well. Man, that's just the cherry on the top. That's just a little bit of it. And our real job is to help people discover their gifts and their passions and their stories and to get equipped to, to, to do the work of the ministry and help people realize, hey, you may be a second grade elementary school teacher, but you might be an evangelist. Yeah. You may be a plumber, but you might be a prophet. Let's go. And, and pulling away the professionalization and the clergyification of those of those giftings and saying, no, this is for the everyday people, man, let's, let's help people discover their gifts. Let's help them start practicing yeah. their gifts. Let's help them, their voice come through their gifts. And then as we send them out into the places they live, work, play, hang out in the marketplaces, 
man, now you've embedded culture. It's like yeast pushed into the dough, that's right? Great. And mm. that's where you get that movement. Love it. That's man, great. it's been good. As we begin to kind of land the plane here, um, I just want to say thank you for being here with us. And and would you just take uh, like maybe the next couple of seconds to dream with us a bit? Uh, it, if you were to see in your mind's eye and in your heart and in your spirit some of these themes of the book um, lived out fully, what does the American church look like in the future? Wow. I mean, to me, it looks like, uh, as, as lame as this may, or cliche as this may sound, it looks like the church in the New Testament. You know, it's like ordinary people who live such a compelling life of love that it creates questions, which leads to spiritual conversations, which leads to, let's go to the scriptures. I want you to see what Jesus said. I want you to meet Jesus. And then out of those little discovery Bible studies, new extended spiritual families form. They're called micro churches. And then they start multiplying and they network together like the church in the city of Rome is a network of five or six micro churches. And then those cities start networking together. You know, I like to think of city movements of missionaries and micro churches that are learning from each other, you know, networks in Kansas city, learning from networks in Seattle and learning from networks in Boise and learning from networks. And, and it'd be a very, uh, underground thing. Um, like you said, some of them, some of those networks and movements may have buildings and spaces. Others are like, we don't need it. Like it won't, and it'll be mostly bivocational, co-vocational. There'll be some people that are paid, but they'll, they will be doing what Lance said. It's like, they're going to get paid to equip people to be multipliers of disciples and leaders and micros and networks. And even them, they're going to be like Paul, where it's going to be partly patrons and support, and they'll probably still have another job. You know, it's going to look real different than I think what we've seen, but it will coexist with what we've seen. Cause I think we still need the prevailing model. There's a certain part of the work that it can accomplish. But, and I like to think that we're going to see a genuine revival that in the church. It's going to lead to a genuine spiritual yeah. awakening. Kind of it's in the history. I, I, I agree with that. I, and, I, and I think we've really, and this is the first time I would say this, I think in my lifetime, I can really conceptualize and see we've got a, we, we've got an actual shot at a revival. And historically speaking, if you look at the history of revivals, we're due one. And I mean, I'm not saying that uh, in any other way than seriously is we're due one. And so I believe that if we will listen to the Holy Spirit and we'll be obedient to the Holy Spirit and throw down our crowns, uh, we can see something that is historic. Amen. No, that's amazing, man. Thank you guys for being with us. We want people to read the book. You know, before yes. we wrap up here, go read, maybe, go read this book. Guys. Yeah, yeah, this is an amazing tool and a resource for the church. So maybe um, you guys can point us in the right direction. Where can people learn a more about your work? Where can they pick up the book and um, any additional resources that that you guys would want to recommend? Well, the book can be found just about any resource. Amazon's always a go-to for for people, you know. But uh, all the major booksellers, uh, we have a website called the starfishinthespirit.com. You can find out a little bit more uh, if you want to connect with us for training, coaching, that type of stuff. Um, and then the Starfish in the Church podcast. Let's go. So, <laughs> what am I missing, Rob? What That's else? That's it. That's just, it. We we love to connect with you. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I know that this is probably just the beginning. And like you're saying, Rob, we're hoping that the Lord is going to do some really cool things and that there's some cross-pollination in all this. I just want to thank you guys on behalf. You know, we talked a little bit about this earlier. Our generation, you know, and, and younger guys, thank you guys that we get to pick your brain, stand on your guys' shoulder, that you guys have so far run the race faithfully. And so we want to honor that and want to be that um, kind of brothers uh, and sisters in the faith to you guys. And, and the disciples that we hope to raise up, you know, um, you know, we, we, we get to say that we're part of a lineage of people that have been pursuing the real thing all along. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Keeping It Simple where we talk about life and mission in ways that are easy to understand. Stay tuned as we release episodes each Wednesday. We'd appreciate it if you would like, review, share, and subscribe our podcast. Thank you for listening.